Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Matthew's account of the parable of the sower, Jesus demonstrates the meaning of three critical Matthean teachings. First, seek and ye shall find. Second, the eye is the lamp of the body. And finally, number three, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. The last warning baffles modern Christians for whom religion is a pursuit of happiness vis-a-vis emotional and psychological consolation. Matthew's Gospel dynamites this illusion in its proclamation and application of Isaiah, where the showdown between God and his people makes it very clear that some sins are definitely unforgivable. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 14 to 16. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 302 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard, you and I were talking about last week's episode about seeking the text and knocking on its door, a main theme last week. We talked again about the eye being the lamp of the body, but there was a third element that comes together with this triptych in the parable of the sower in Matthew to help us understand how the writer, how the Matthean Jesus is applying the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. And the third piece, of course, was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this concept, which has been touched on more than once in Matthew's gospel, is taken from the prophecy of Isaiah, and that comes front and center in verse 14 of chapter 13. You're right, Father. I think that Isaiah is actually the foundation of this idea that you can hear and not hear. The Pharisees saw the work of the Holy Spirit, but did not see the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is you see it working and you refuse to see it. Human beings see virtue in someone who is supposedly an enemy, and they see it as something bad. This is how every conspiracy theory starts. You see something happen, oh, there must be another explanation for this, because there's no way that that person could have possibly done that. This is the illusion, this is the madness that they're under, because they can't see what's right before their eyes. And the sad thing is, is that when you see someone from the other tribe, it's only too easy to attribute their actions to something bad. I mean, Jesus didn't have to consult with experimental psychology, but experimental psychologists have shown that what Jesus was saying is absolutely correct, that when people think that they see something wicked happening, that's enough to ignore what is actually happening and the action of the Holy Spirit. This is what 
caused the original dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees in this extended scene. It's no small irony that in Isaiah chapter 6, where verse 14 is taken from, we begin with the death of the king, which is what the Methan genealogy ultimately is dealing with, and the overwhelming hegemony of the God of Abraham whose garment fills the temple with its majesty, and the angel brings the coal to the lips of the prophet, who is, in fact, in his own words, ruined by what's happening, which is beautiful. He takes the coal, which represents the instruction, and he touches the unclean lips of the prophet so that the prophet can speak. And there's, of course, this famous line, which is used in our tradition, when the gifts are distributed to the faithful, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I love this verse because it's not as though Isaiah was suddenly a great guy. It's that the Lord is correcting his speech by touching his lips with his instruction. And That creates the context for what we hear now in verse 14 and 15. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand, you will keep on seeing but will not perceive. So here in verse 14, we recognize the origin of the condemnation about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because Isaiah has been given the correct teaching, and people who don't want to hear it will not understand. People who don't want their sight corrected by the hearing of the gospel. Remember, you hear the gospel, and then it puts its light in the lamp of your eye, and then you can see correctly and perceive correctly. But if you're not seeking, And if your desire is not to pursue knowledge of the instruction, if you reject the coal, then suddenly, by choosing not to be obedient, you are condemned with ignorance and blindness. Isaiah is all about the people and their rejection of God. And we have this very famous line right at the beginning in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, the ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people does not consider. This is the original problem of the Israelites in that they don't understand that someone is feeding them. They don't understand that someone is supporting them, that someone is sustaining them, and that's God. When Isaiah in chapter 6 Here's this famous line in chapter 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, this is such an important line, both in Jewish and Christian liturgical traditions. How many masses have been written that have the sanctus, which is this very verse. The idea in liturgical worship is we feel like now we are approaching God God is coming into our midst. We're starting to experience something holy. But the point in this chapter is that the earthquake, the shaking of the building itself, scares Isaiah to death. 
woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He understands when he hears that God, the Lord of hosts, is holy, it scares Isaiah. Isaiah realizes how far he is from the faithfulness he's supposed to be showing to this one that the angels are declaring holy, and Isaiah can't argue with them. I mean, the Lord of hosts is the most holy one. And so Isaiah is so scared. And the way that he's purified, you know, we talk about the way that this verse is used in communion in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but this is a hot coal coming from the altar. It purifies, but it does not purify in a pleasant way. I mean, you're not putting balm on something. This is not olive oil you're smoothing on. This is a hot coal off of the altar. This is what purifies. So going back to what you're saying, Father, this word that comes that puts its light in your eye, this word does it in a painful way way. It has to purge. It has to burn. It has to disinfect the impurities in the mouth that it's going to come out of. This image is so important of the fire, of the coal, because this is used as an image of what will purify the city. The city has to burn. The city has to be purge in this way for it to be purified again. This is the beginning of being able to hear. Human beings, for whatever reason, have to be shaken by something horrible happening in their lives to get their priorities straight. For Isaiah to understand, he has to be shaken, he has to be burned. Even though he knows in his head that this is the case, for his mouth to actually speak the word something drastic has to change in his body. And this is what has to happen for people to actually see and for people to actually hear. It's terrifying for the prophet, and it should be terrifying for anyone who hears the annunciation of the content of the reading when they attend a service. It's terrifying because in the metaphor of chapter 6, God is usurping the power of the king in the temple and it brings destruction in the sense that everything that the king assumed, everything that the king wanted, everything that the king controlled is now wiped away. Everything is under judgment because now the Lord of hosts fills the temple with the majesty of his robe, which, you know, if you understand what you're hearing, means ultimately He's coming for, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the temple of your body. And that's exactly what's happening in Isaiah. He's taking this hot coal, and he's coming now to usurp the throne in your temple so that he can control your speech and your behavior. And in this sense, the prophet is ruined. It boils down to a showdown between the one hearing the text and the one enthroned. Either you accept his aegis over your life and submit, or you rebel and commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. This second portion isn't a direct quote from Isaiah. It's drawing on 
a number of different texts from the Old Testament, but it keys in on what Isaiah is saying in chapter 10, where God chooses to make the hearts of the people fat. He chooses to stop their ears and to shut their eyes. And then we hear this expression that their heart has become dull and with their ears they scarcely hear. In other words, this is the key point, that this is God cursing them with judgment and forcefully blinding them and making them not hear. And this flies in the face of modern piety, where we're all wrapped up in a knot about nurturing people and helping people understand that they're loved. That's not what I read here. What I read here is that if the people don't submit to the instruction, they're on their own to the extent that God himself will make it impossible for them to hear the instruction. It's a very difficult and heavy passage in Isaiah and subversive in the way that Matthew is applying it to the parable of the sower. It's very subversive. You tell the parable so that the people who want to hear can understand, and the people who don't want to hear are just going to be confused. By speaking indirectly, this is precisely the point, is to sort out who's trying and who isn't. In parish life, it always tends to be the people who complain the most who actually do the least. It's like there's already a tendency built in I tell my wife, you know, the people who like to complain, like to complain. If you remove the obstacle, poor them, they have to go find something else to complain about. When people get on this track, there's no hope. So when we were talking several uh, episodes ago about the problem of Jesus saying that there is no time, don't waste your time, they're not worthy of the time, it's because their mind, when you read heart, read mind, their mind is too thick you're not going to get through. So what's even more significant is God says, oh no, it's not them who's got the thick head. Your word has made their thick head. They couldn't handle the truth, so they had to build up a callus to keep the truth from getting in. The word itself causes them to be thick-headed, and the word itself prevents those who refuse to hear to be able to hear. But those who want to hear, it makes them able to hear. Why is this? Because when you hear a parable and you don't understand, the people who don't want to hear say, what's this idiot speaking in riddles? But the ones who want to understand say, I'm really sorry, Jesus. I don't understand what you're saying. Would you mind explaining what you're saying? I'm having a tough time. They're willing to put in the time to understand as opposed to saying, eh, Jesus, maybe you should explain it more when I get some time. People are confronted with the parable, are confronted with the problem, but they need to take the effort into their own hands to understand, and that's what separates those who want the kingdom and those who do not want the kingdom. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. We have to hear verse 16 in context of the interaction between the seraphim and the prophet in chapter 6 of Isaiah. You are not blessed because you are blessed. You are blessed because the angel corrected your lips with the burning coal of God's wisdom. So you are blessed because the Messiah in the Gospel of Matthew is offering you the hot coal so that your speech can be corrected and therefore understanding received and perception corrected so that you see with the lamp of God's instruction. So critical that we understand always, as Father Paul says, 
we are not Semites, we are Shemites, meaning that our whole identity is a non-identity because we pertain to the name of the Lord. It is the name that is blessed, so to the extent that through our actions we pertain to that name, which can only come through the hearing of Scripture and the correct perceiving in the world with the light of its instruction, that we are blessed. And that's why this word blessed is very tricky. When people say they're blessed, they're speaking in worldly terms about things that don't pertain to the name of the Lord. It's a serious matter. The fact that the disciples are confused and are trying to understand the answer allows them to be blessed because their admission to their ignorance is equivalent to Isaiah's admission of his uncleanness. I am incapable of understanding this word. I am incapable of following this word. Jesus, help me. Isaiah's lack of cleanness has to be purified, and allowing himself to be purified is the only way that he can grasp what the word is saying so that he can deliver it to others. Because that weakness in the New Testament, which is not a New Testament idea, that weakness is what precipitates the acquiescence towards the throne of the one whose train fills the temple. If you already give in, or to borrow from 2 Corinthians, if you are already willing to open your splankna to the instruction from the outset, if you already realize that you're ruined, then there's hope for you, because instead of fighting the throne, you accept its authority and the temple of your body in Pauline terms comes under its control and is filled with the spirit of the one whom Isaiah feared. And isn't it interesting that this parallels our discussion of the one who was healed of demon possession, how the temple of his body was empty and was therefore vulnerable? Here, if you allow God to fill your temple with his garment, then you won't be at risk of being possessed by a false teaching in Matthew. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is a nice literary flourish, because in the literary arc of the Bible, it's a reference to the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, explicating Torah to them. But in the way that these metaphors work, in the way that they apply to the one hearing the story, you are blessed because you're hearing the story. So the question being posed now is, are you going to yield to that blessing and seek the scroll of God's instruction and knock upon the door of the gospel? Or are you going to rebel and try to bring back the king in Isaiah chapter 6? So many have wanted to hear this word, but hearing they did not hear because they had this block. So now the disciples have finally seen and finally heard the true teaching. And by approaching it from a point of ignorance and a point of weakness, they have the ability to hear and to understand. However, just because they now have the chance to see, does not mean that they will see. The fact that they have the chance to understand, to hear and to see, doesn't mean that everything will be fine. And we know that at least one among their number 
will ultimately fall into the same fate as the Pharisees, and we know that another will betray the Lord. So this is not a once-in-a-lifetime shot where there's an altar call and then everything is fine afterwards. It doesn't work like that. This test that comes in verse 16 and verse 17 gets repeated every moment of every day. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. You, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.